today's scripture reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told, it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uah, please pray with me. Lord, speak your word to us and open our eyes that we may see all that you have for us. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, this now is the uh, 10th sermon in a series of sermons I'm preaching on the prophet Elisha. Um, there will be one more sermon and then we'll be done with uh, Elisha. So last week there was a brief uh, truce between Israel and Syria, and God healed Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. And in today's reading, war has resumed. It's not clear, but if this story follows the previous one chronologically, then whatever goodwill that there might have been 
uh, through the healing of Naaman, has long been forgotten. Our reading paints a rather unflattering picture of the unnamed king of Syria. When his plans for war are uh, repeatedly thwarted by a leak in intelligence, he suspects treason or perhaps a mole in his camp. His servants know better and inform him that it is the prophet Elisha who somehow has supernatural access to his military strategy. So the king sends a great army to kidnap Elisha by night as if somehow the cover of darkness will protect them when all of his other plans have been made known to Elisha. Then when a great army surrounds the town Elisha is staying in, his servant is understandably terrified. Elisha, however, reassures him with what must have been puzzling words, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He then prays that his servant's eyes might be opened, and he sees the hidden spiritual world that Elisha had already apparently seen, a mountain full of horses and chariots on fire. Elisha then prays a second time, and the Syrian army is struck by a kind of blinding light. And he plays what reminds me of a Jedi mind trick, and he leads or misleads the army that does not realize that the bald leading the blind is actually the man they have come to capture. They do not realize that the reality has been distorted until Elisha prays a third time for their sight to be restored. Then, in what must have been a horrible shock, they discovered that they are now prisoners in the capital of Israel. The king of Israel sees the captured army like a little child. He can hardly contain his eagerness, and he gleefully asks twice, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? But in an O'Henry-esque before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And the story concludes with the hopeful words, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Um, you know, I realized this week that I've never preached on this text before, but in my life, I've, I attempted to write one Christian song in my life. Uh, this was when I was in college, so my sister and I, uh, we wrote a Christian, you know, a Christian song, and I realized it was based on this text. The, the title of the song was Open My Eyes or Open Our I wish I had it. I wish I had it so I could share it with you. Uh, but maybe that's God's uh, mercy on you all. To, um, but it, it just seems so odd to me that of all the texts that I could have picked, um, I don't know why. I have no memory of it now. But, uh, and I don't remember the lyrics to the song. I'm sure it was terrible. But, uh, but it was based on this, this idea of having our eyes uh, open. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've come to really appreciate about Elisha during these uh, several months that we've been kind of uh, looking at his life is how he so often is constrained in his miracles, right? Uh, instead of making a new axe, he helps to find the lost one. Uh, instead of conjuring up millions of shekels, he has a desperate widow instead go around begging for uh, empty jars and kind of starting her own little uh, side hustle. Uh, instead of recreating a feast uh, with beef stew, he feeds the hungry with uh, a vegetable soup and uh, barley bread that he has received as a gift. And here, instead of praying uh, for sudden and spectacular deliverance, instead of praying for the destruction of the Syrian army with fire, as Elijah might have done, 
He asks instead that his servant's eyes might be opened. I mean, right? That's a good prayer. Rather than praying for just simple deliverance, he prays that his servant might see the situation as it really is through the eyes of faith. Elisha's prayer was not simply deliverance from a difficult situation, but one that would help to nurture the faith of the servant. Helen Keller famously said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. The only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. This is the reason that Jesus also judged the Pharisees. They failed to recognize their own spiritual blindness. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him uh, heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Like they couldn't believe that they were being accused of blindness. And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, we, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So this idea of blindness, of, of spiritual blindness, of spiritual seeing, it's, it's, uh, it's a theme that we see throughout the scriptures. And the Pharisees failed to recognize the presence of God in Jesus Christ. They were blind to the spiritual reality that was right before them in, in the works and in the healing that Jesus was performing. And so because of that blindness, they accused Jesus you know, of, of being with, the, with Satan and they missed out on their own salvation. What you see or how you see uh, really determines your response to any difficult situation. And when you see your situation, when you see the world as God sees it with God's presence, uh, then the situation can be just redefined. Uh, do you remember that meme? Uh, I don't know, a few years ago at least, I think. Um, there was that dress where some people swore it was like a blue and black dress, but other people said, no, no, it's gold and white. Remember that? Like, it's the same picture, and yet two people could look at it, and both sides would swear that, no, it's definitely blue and black. No, it's definitely white. Like, you couldn't understand how the other person couldn't see the colors that you were seeing. Now, I don't know how that worked. I have no explanation for that, but um, it, it points to this kind of reality for me that different people just, we just perceive the world differently, right? Two people can experience the same set of circumstances, the same difficulty, and one person can see it as the most horrible thing, uh, approach it with dread, while another person can have this kind of um, confident peace toward the same difficult situation. Is the glass half empty or half full, right? And for us, this is far more than being an optimist or a pessimist, it's the difference between faith and unbelief. That's the difference that is being pointed to here. The situation has not changed. The Syrian army is still there. They're still going to attack. But my perception is changed by my faith. The actions of the army, I, I can't control that. But my perception of what's going to happen, that gets changed. In every situation, faith sees that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Or as it says in the first letter of John, greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And this story is a kind of parable of the history of Israel and what the history books and the scriptures, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles are all about. 
Historians will look to the decisions of kings and the outcome of battles as determining the course of history. But what we are assured of here through the eyes of faith is that it is God who is ultimately in control. The king of Syria and the king of Israel thought that they were in control, but here they are presented as fools because really, in the larger story, it is God who is directing their paths. Remember last week in the story of Naaman, we heard that because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Naaman didn't know. The Syrians didn't know. But it was God who had given victory over Israel through Naaman. It must have, you know, just imagine the, the sobering theological reality to know that God is using your enemies to defeat your own people. God allowed other nations to chastise Israel for her abandonment of the soul worship of God. And God is not only in the control over the destiny of his people, the Israelites, but over the destinies of other nations and other individuals as well. Theologically understood, when Israel experiences defeat in battle, it is not because they lack military superiority. It is because they fail to follow God. It is because they fail to trust God. And here Elisha and the servants saw that there is an unseen army around God's people, greater than any earthly army. As Luther's hymn declares, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Lord Sabaoth his name, the Lord of hosts is his name, and he must, he will win the battle. And it's easy to miss here, but there is a small detail that reiterates and points to God's sovereign plans. Elisha is in the town of Dothan. That name is probably not familiar to most of you, um, but that town, a pivotal story takes place in this town, in the scriptures. It's the only other time that this town is mentioned in the Bible, and it's in the story of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis. Remember, Joseph's father, uh, Jacob, had sent Joseph to go check on his brothers. Um, And so Joseph goes looking for his brothers. He looks around and he's told that his brothers are staying in the town of Dothan. And so he goes there and when they see him, they hate him so much, they want to kill him. But at the last minute, they decide we're not going to kill him and they put him in a pit. And then when some uh, merchants pass by, they sell him into slavery. And Joseph goes down to Egypt And you know the rest of that story. That story takes place in Dothan. And remember, Joseph goes to Egypt. He becomes very powerful. And it's through his economic policies that he saves the world during a devastating seven-year famine. And he also rescues his own family. They all come down and emigrate to Egypt. And looking back on his life, Joseph says this to his brothers. You meant evil against me. Right? So he, he's acknowledging, like, what you did to me was evil. He's not sugarcoating it. But, he says, but God meant it for good. God was using what you were trying to do against me for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. Dothan was a site of God's much greater plans. You see that God had bigger plans Not only just to save Joseph, but to save the entire world. Joseph certainly did not see chariots of fire or God's plan or God's deliverance in that moment when he was being sold off as a slave in Dothan. 
But as he looked back on his life, he could see, he could see how God had been protecting him and how God was in control all the time. I think we, most of us, are not likely to see chariots of fire uh, in difficult situations. It's unlikely that we will have the kind of large role that Joseph had or Elisha had. Um, but we can be as confident in God's sovereignty. We can trust that God is working out his promises for our good and for our salvation. And, and this really is a foundation of our Reformed tradition. This is why we're Presbyterians. Uh, in contrast to other churches and other theologies, we begin with this idea that God is sovereign that God is in control, and that his promises to us are certain because God has promised. And that God's control, God's will, will not be thwarted. And it's that knowledge, it's that knowledge, and, and maybe, maybe Elisha was having his quiet time that morning on the story of Joseph. It's that knowledge that leads Elisha to say, do not fear. Just as Joseph had said, do not fear. Faith sees that the battle is under control and is already won. Faith sees that no weapon formed against us shall prevail. As the lyrics in Chris Tomlin's song confidently states, Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is by my side. In Lamentations 3, Jeremiah recalls, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. He also found himself in the pit. From the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called you, and you said, do not fear. The answer to Jeremiah's prayer was the presence of God telling him, do not fear. Do not fear. Before any rescue, it was the word, do not fear. And that's what Elisha offers to his servant here. Do not fear. He sees that God is present, and so he can reassure his servant to not fear. I know that um, we're not likely to uh, face uh, enemies, an enemy army at our doors, as some people in the world, uh, of course, are uh, tomorrow morning. Um, but we all face anxieties. We all face worries, troubles, illnesses, um, sudden uh, catastrophes, and eventually all of us will have to face death. We are not removed. We are not removed from these situations. Rather, we are called to see our situations differently, to walk by faith, not by sight. We are called to not fear. We are called to fear no evil, for God is with us every step of the way. And to proclaim, do not fear, to those who are fearful. In faith, what looks like a hopeless situation becomes an opportunity for deliverance and praise. In every circumstance, we remember that we have an ally who never fails. As Proverbs 21 declares, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. That's what we have to see. That's what we are invited to see with our eyes of faith. And when our eyes are open to that spiritual reality, it is then that we can act with mercy as Elisha does here. Elisha has seen that the Syrian army is no match for God. And here he could have chosen to be a patriot 
he could have chosen to be a national hero and pray that God would unleash his chariots of fire against the Syrian army. He could have done that. He could have destroyed his enemies who had come in to capture him, who had incurred into the land of Israel. But instead, he leads them to the capital where he surprises everyone, everyone, by calling on the king to feed his enemies. And what's even more amazing is that even though Elisha had called for bread and water as an act of mercy and hospitality, the king, perhaps embarrassed by his initial outburst, perhaps to show off his largesse, uh, prepares instead a great feast for his enemies before sending them home. Right? I mean, this is just this is an unimaginable ending to this story. That you go from a potential war to now the king, who a moment ago wanted to strike down his enemies, preparing this lavish feast for his captured enemies. I don't think we need to be politically naive to think that all the wars of the world can be resolved permanently by providing a, a lavish meal. That is not the point. In fact, uh, Elisha's actions do not end the war. The claim that the Syrians did not come again on raised into the land of Israel was very short-lived, very short-lived. In fact, in the very next verse, it says, Afterward, Benadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria, that is Israel. Right? So right afterwards, the king mustered his entire army to go to war. War resumes in the ensuing pages. And we become witnesses to the horrors of war as mothers, we are told, resort to eating their own children because the situation has become so desperate. Lest we forget, that's what war is. That's what war is. I mean, we may not literally eat our children, but we destroy our children. And Elisha knows that untold people will suffer in the ensuing wars. And Elisha's act of mercy does not end all wars, but it ended at least this one battle. By his actions, at least one group of people, perhaps one generation, one town, one army, one family escape the ravages of war. You know, during the uh, Middle Ages, there were eight crusades organized over a period of two and a half centuries. It was a, just, a, just a horrendous, horrendous uh, effort to regain the Holy Land uh, from the Muslims. It was just absolutely terrible. I mean, Christians committed unspeakable atrocities, not only against the Muslims, but against Jews and against other Christians of other, you know, what we would say denominations. And worst of all, the church told all these soldiers that if you go and you fight in this crusade, you would receive a plenary indulgence. That is, you would be cleared, you would be forgiven of all your sins. Just go to a crusade and all your sins will be forgiven. All of them. Right? It was, it was a guaranteed ticket to heaven. And so people went off to war. One man, however, thought that the war was not the answer. During the Fifth Crusade, during a brief truce, St. Francis of Assisi, 
uh, whom some people have called the last true Christian, uh, and I kind of agree, went to meet with the sultan. And after about three weeks in the court of the sultan, Francis returned and went back to his hometown of Assisi. His efforts did not end the crusades, but he might have saved one group of soldiers. We don't know what Francis and the sultan talked about during those three weeks, but afterwards, there was a flooding of the Nile River and Christian soldiers were trapped in the mud. And the sultan, in a surprising act of mercy, allowed the soldiers to surrender rather than having them killed. And he even sent them daily rations of bread until they could leave Egypt unharmed. The Christian soldiers who were shown that mercy could not believe that a Muslim would do that for them. And they believed that Francis must have secretly baptized Sultan because they thought that only a Christian could show that kind of compassion. Now, we don't know what moved the Sultan to display such mercy, but I believe that even though he was not persuaded by Francis to become a Christian, he was moved by the beauty of Francis' life. And it makes me wonder that during those three weeks, if they did a Bible study on this passage. And that's what inspired his actions. I know that every nation will do what they think is necessary for their own national security and their own national prosperity. And too often they have claimed God was on their side and blessing their actions. It's not always clear to me who's right or rather who's less wrong. But what is clear is that God's plans are not for war and destruction. God's plan, God's intent, his creational intent is for peace, for well-being, for shalom, for all his people and for all the earth. You know, in the ESV, Israel's uh, enemy is identified as the king of Syria. And repeatedly you've heard uh, the word Syria to refer to this uh, enemy. But actually in the Hebrew, it's Aram. And, um, you know, the ESV went with Syria because that's modern Syria. But it's not the nation of Syria like we're thinking of today. So I think, I don't know why, they should have just kept it Aram, right? And the reason for that is, um, one, we don't want to confuse it with with the modern nation of Syria, um, but there is an even more important link with this word. In the book of Deuteronomy, Israel's patriarch is referred to as a wandering Aramean. A wandering Aramean. They may be enemies now, but they were the same people. Whether it's Abraham or Jacob, the the patriarchs of Israel, they refer to them as a wandering Aramean. And these are Arameans. And we would say today, they're brothers. They are both the children of God. Most of us may have little impact on national policy. But do we not have enemies? But do you also realize that there are also the children of God and therefore your brothers and sisters? And if enemy is too strong of a word, are there not people that you don't get along with? I know that there are nations and groups of people that you may think uh, uh, as your enemies for historical reasons. But why don't we think smaller? Smaller. 
isn't there someone in your family or a church who could use a little breaking of bread with you or even better, a great feast? As I said last week, humanly speaking, there is no reason to pray for your enemies, for those whom you think have done you wrong. There is no reason for you to wish for their well-being. Except, except, that's the command of God. Right? This, is, this is not the word you want to hear maybe, but this is our call. What Elisha teaches me is that the thing about mercy is that it is something that I have to choose to do. Mercy is an action, just like love is an action. Regardless how, of how I might feel about someone, I can always choose to act with mercy. Mercy is a deliberate decision to choose what is best for the other and seeks nothing in return. This is different from and should not be confused or conflated with forgiveness. Forgiveness is the willingness to take the hurt someone has committed against you upon yourself. Forgiveness also requires a shift in feelings towards the one who has wronged you. And so forgiveness is really difficult for a different set of reasons. But mercy, on the other hand, is difficult because it chooses to offer bread and water and sometimes steak and wine to the undeserving. Mercy chooses to not take advantage of someone who is in an inferior position. Mercy does not require an apology or the offer of forgiveness. Elisha had every right to demand the death of his enemies who had come to capture and imprison him. But he chose mercy. He chose hospitality. Next week is Thanksgiving uh, Sunday for us. And as you know, we're encouraging everyone to consider how someone in your life has done something good for you this year and to share your story with the prompt. Lord, please remember someone for the good they did for me. I imagine that when the Aramean soldiers went back home, that's what they did. They testified of the goodness of the God of Israel. They discovered that those who followed this God, this God was different, that this God had mercy on them, not only sparing their lives, but throwing a lavish feast for them. That's our call. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 12, if possible, and it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, sometimes your word for us um, is hard, and sometimes it's really hard. The idea of feeding our enemies just seems so ludicrous. And we see here this morning that even such efforts at best only provide temporary relief. 
And yet, and yet, this is what you have called us to. So God, trusting in you, help us to see with the eyes of faith. To open our hearts, to choose mercy, and to extend hospitality to those whom we may not consider as friends. Help us to bear faithful witness so that in our testimony, others may see this God, this God that we follow is different. That those who profess the name of this God act with mercy and with kindness and hospitality. We ask that your spirit would empower us, open our eyes to see what is really going on so that we may be moved to faithful action. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.